What's going on, everyone? This is George Khalife. We're back with another episode of Let's Grab Coffee. I'm joined today uh, by a new friend, I should say, and, and someone who I met recently and I had the pleasure of meeting, uh, Michelle Falcon. Michelle is a c- serial entrepreneur uh, who does, you know, I, I guess a couple of things. But the one thing I want to mention first is, you know, serial entrepreneur whose businesses earn now over you know, $15 million a year in sales. He's His kind of focus has been really in the kind of competitive hospitality space. If you're in Toronto, you'll know these two places where Michelle is a partner at, uh, Borrow, which is actually, Michelle, where I was last weekend. Uh, loved it uh, and the petty cash. So Michelle's really kind of intertwined in that in that industry. Um, recently wrote a book called People First Culture: Building a Lasting Company by Shifting Your Focus from Profits to People. I love that and I'm super excited to talk about it. So that's available on Amazon if you're hearing this. Uh, super cool guy who also advises a lot of companies, speaks all over the place, like Saudi Arabia, which is where I lived for ten years. So I I think we need to talk about that at one point. Uh, but nonetheless, man, thanks a lot for doing this and, and I appreciate your time. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Uh, you've had some really cool people that I both know, like Swish and Rachel David. So it's a pleasure. Uh, and thank you for the invitation. So I always want to sort of ask kind of the starting point because the tipping point for me is always uh, the interesting one. But did you always know you wanted to, to be an entrepreneur? I knew that I had entrepreneurial desires and um, some traits, uh, but earlier in my career, I would have probably told you I wanted to go like the executive route with uh, within a recognizable company, but I kept getting pulled into the entrepreneurial world, and eventually I became an entrepreneur. Uh, so I wouldn't say that it was since I was a little kid, like hustling lemonade stands and things like that. Um, but I knew that it was within me. And when I took that leap, uh, it was, I knew that I wouldn't go back to uh, the other alternative, which would be um, the executive route. And, and did you sort of find those entrepreneurial tendencies when you were at, say, 1-800-GOT-JUNK? I know I had Brian Scudamore on the podcast as well. Huge fan of his. I know that I think you had him on as well recently. So was that kind of the the, the building point, like kind of the you know the pots kind of stewing at, within those five five and a half years that you were there? I would say so, yeah, uh, because it was you know there's not many other entrepreneurial success stories like one eight hundred got junk. Um, it is just a quintessential great entrepreneurial success story. So it did. I kind of bred myself there. Um, And the reason why I made the decision to go down the entrepreneur route is because I, I wanted to be responsible uh, and have full autonomy on what it is that I was trying to build. And while you can have that autonomy within a workplace, I reference this a lot when a vision is trying to come out of me, I want a clear runway with no encumbrances so that it can come out of me. It can flourish. I can manage it. Uh, and I believe the best way to do that is the entrepreneurial route. Yeah, that's a very good point. I love the fact that you were saying in the beginning, kind of, you know, look, I wasn't the lemonade stand guy because that's often all you hear now. You know, especially yeah. because entrepreneurship is glory. Like, I think we all kind of hear this all the time. Um, but to do that, like, 
I think it would require a lot of EQ. But for a lot of people listening, they're probably in the same predicament, Sean. They're like, listen, but how do you actually realize this about yourself? Like, were you reflecting? Were you meditating? Were you asking mentors? Like, what was that process for you? I would suggest that there are going to be some behaviors within yourself that you know that need to be nurtured and that might not happen within an organization that you're contributing to the success of um you will know that you want that full autonomy you will have to come to the realization as well too that you know cash flow budgeting all those things are now your responsibility at a much larger scale so you'll need to ask yourself hard questions like are you truly committed to taking on all of these responsibilities and during my time at 1-800 got junk these questions did present themselves like i i would be lying to you if uh, i didn't say sometimes i was frustrated that i had a boss um and then that's part of it where you're like i don't i can't i can't work for somebody anymore I need this for myself. Uh, and then after that, you, those questions will arise that you'll need to ask yourself, like, am I willing to take all the risk? And you mentioned earlier, did mentors um, help? Absolutely, they did. Um, they would ask pointed questions like, are you ready to take the risk? Are you ready to not have money in your bank account and have to figure out a way to fill the tank uh, because every entrepreneur has that story. And I have that as well too, where I was like, this is hard. I no longer have the operating budget that was given to me to be able to deploy this program. I now have to figure out how I'm going to manage cash flow, how I'm going to find budget. Where's that next paycheck going to come from? And it really tests your mental fortitude. Uh, there were times uh, where I was in tears, being like, you know, creditors calling. You don't even want to look at your phone because you know that one out of every three calls is somebody that you owe money to. Um, and I have um, an article coming out uh, soon within the next 30 days and on a recognizable publication um, that describes kind of my entrepreneurial journey and and I, I share everything like they were tough times uh, but it's really it, then your flight or fight mechanism kicks in and um, you just got to break through that mm-hmm. yeah I mean I wanted to draw on two things quickly the, the, the one thing when you said about the mentorship I think you have a really good post by the way on Instagram um, I probably commented on it recently, but uh, it's the one where you you kind of learn from people you admire. And, and every year for those listening, he's basically saying, like, I, I do the following. Uh, I select one entrepreneur, athlete or professional to study from and learn from. I think that's uh, amazing. Um, really good advice to you, man, and, and something I think a lot of people would learn from. But I want to yeah. continue on the on the place where you're saying, listen, like, it's going to be very challenging. Basically, every entrepreneur is going to go through like a valley of the shadow, right? Like that's what he, he Reed Hoffman says. Um, when, when you do go through that, I think the advice is always, well, select something you're very passionate about. Now, for you, was that the hospitality industry? And if so, how did you come about thinking, you know what, this is going to be for, for me, even though I'm going to go through all this havoc, I'm still going to make it through? 
Yeah. So no, I, it was never hospitality for me. It was always people. So, um, the, the George, the three topics that I've dedicated my career to are company culture, customer experience and employee engagement strategies. And how do you leverage these strategies to be able to grow a profitable business, regardless of industry or size of company? I just happen to be in hospitality today. Um, next year, I'll, I'll be in a different industry. And uh, I can share a little bit more in a moment on that. But uh, it, it was never an industry focus. Like, I should hate hospitality. And the reason why is because my father, um, in high school, my father owned a restaurant in Vancouver. And he had a tough time with it. He, he got, um, unfortunately, he didn't have... Um, a business partner that uh, he could end up trusting and, and he had to file for bankruptcy. So the hospitality industry is kind of my family's boogeyman. Um, but in 2016, while I was doing um, you know, management consulting as a solopreneur uh, around these three topics, so companies would hire me to help them increase their, uh, their customer loyalty or build their cultures uh, I was presented an opportunity by a friend to move from Vancouver to Toronto for a three-month period to help them with some of the strategies that I know. Three months turned into six months. Six months turned into, do you want to be a partner in this build a, uh, business and help us open other venues? I said, absolutely, let's do this. Uh, so I just happened to work my way into hospitality, but it was never a dream to get into it. Um, it's been very fruitful and very rewarding and it's been great and oh so challenging. Uh, prior to um, hospitality in my management consulting days, I'd name an industry and I've probably worked within it, biotech, um, pharmaceuticals, automotive, retail, quick service. Like I've leveraged these strategies in a myriad of different industries. So I did not, I'm not industry specific. I just know that these strategies that impact the lives and enrich the lives of human beings uh, are applicable to any industry. Mm. Yeah, that, that's that's key. And, and for you, you're saying culture, customer experience. How do you de- how do you define like say you walk in and I think you had an article on this recently about the Starbucks. You, you were talking basically about three stories around customer experience. I wanted to ask you personally, like, how do you define really good customer experience for me to give you, like, if you walked into my store and you walk out saying, you know what, George gave me a 10 out of 10, the Lebanese, you know, the Lebanese um, sweet bakery mentality. What would you say that, you know, that kind of customer experience is? Right now I'm focused uh, twofold uh, to answer that question uh, and how I advocate this with all, all of our employees and, and anybody that will listen. Um, one it's got to be effortless. Customers don't want to have to work to pay for you to, to do business with you. Okay. So how do you create an effortless experience? Well, you have to walk through the entire customer journey and identify pain points within that journey. So for example, in my industry being hospitality, if it takes George and his three guests 17 minutes to pay for their bill at the end of the dinner, that's not effortless. They just want to leave. So what we'll do is we'll look if if that is a pain point of ours and we identify that that's a pain point because George sits on our customer advisory board and he says, look, I've I've dined with you guys three times in the past two months and it's always a pain to 
to pay for my bill or if we survey our customers which we do and we see that come up in the comments all the time then we're going to say okay there's a problem here now we haven't made this an effortless experience for our guests to pay for their bill uh, so that's one aspect to it and then the second aspect is personalization so it's specific to the purpose of the customer so what i mean by that is uh george you'll probably go to the bank perhaps in the next uh, one or two weeks and you'll be waiting in line to speak to a teller and you'll notice that you're waiting in line for a while because there's a customer speaking to the bank representative uh, which seems for 15 or 20 minutes and you're thinking to yourself like what on earth are they talking about right maybe you overhear a conversation how they're uh, they're talking about the Toronto Raptors or the weather so for that customer, her purpose in doing business with the company is to have a friendly relationship, have off-topic conversations. That's how the bank needs to serve that customer. But if I went into the same bank, I don't want to have those conversations. I just want to be in and out. So that's my definition of success. If the bank representative asked me like, oh, you know, beautiful weather we're having, uh, don't you agree? I'll be like, yeah, I know, yes, I know. But, you know, I'm not really here to talk about the weather. Like, I wouldn't say this to them, of course, but I just want to get down to business. So companies need to realize that they cannot deliver the same experience to every single customer the exact same way. Because what makes me tick might tick George off. I love that, dude. That last tagline. Yeah, it's very true, too. It's very, one, it's very situational. Uh, it depends on the context, but you almost have to read the room. You know, it's kind of like that awareness. Uh, Absolutely. Body language, like body, reading body language matters. Um, switching between offensive and defensive customer experience. So, what we coach our team is when you greet a customer, you're on defensive customer service, meaning you have to have active listening pay attention to that customer personality type. Do they immediately start by saying, oh, I'm having such a great day. Like I took my dog for a walk. And well, at that moment, you could pinpoint that that personality type is probably a socializer. So you know who you're about to manage. You know you're going to have to have long, a long-winded, off-topic conversation most likely. So you have to manage that experience for them. But if... I, if our servers serve George and I come to greet the table and George is like, I'll have a margarita and I know what I want for my appetizer. He's probably a director because he knows what he wants, when he wants it, how he wants it. Mm. At that point, I switch into offensive customer experience. Now it's my turn to shine. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. When you train, you know, the, the team that you're working with, um, specifically that's Keep it on the restaurant side as well, just because we're we're there now. Um, how do you how do you sort of train them to deal with very very bad or negative kind of customer experience? Like, say something bad happens, um, and you say, "Listen, like here's how we're gonna specifically handle it." I'm kind of curious to see your approach personally to to a situation like that. Yeah, whether this is um, within hospitality or not, it's all relevant. It, it's you're only as good as the framework that you have built for your operation. 
So for example, let's say we do have a customer that has an escalated complaint where we have a step-by-step -step process that we follow that our team knows we need to abide by if we're going to build that relationship with guests. So whether it's finance, retail, or hospitality, it all is relevant. So the first thing that we're gonna do is our frontline employee is going to determine right then and there, do I have the ability to manage this complaint and put out the fire? If they say, if they deem that, yes, I, I can, then go and do it. If it's escalated and they require uh, help from our management, then, you know, lean on your management team. From there, we have to determine what action do we need to complete to be able to appease this customer and what are they asking for? Are they asking for a refund, a discount? What are they asking for? And is it within reason? Now, more often than not, it is going to be within reason. If our if a table within our um, restaurant was like everything was awful, just everything was awful, and the what we need to comp is two hundred fifty dollars, we'll just go and do it because the customer lifetime value of that table is worth more than two hundred fifty dollars. That's just simple math. Yeah. However, if the customer has a reputation with us of belittling our employees, always complaining, and we have a record of this, then we could choose to actually not do business with that customer anymore because we clearly cannot meet their expectations after multiple times of trying. So the notion of the customer is always right has never resonated with me because quite frankly, some customers are jerks. They try to steal from us in a maybe non-traditional way. They try to uh, belittle our team who are working diligently. Um, and they try to do things that are malicious. And I've seen it. It's not everyone, but there is a small subset of customers that do this to companies. And as an organization, you send a very loud message to your team when you fire a customer and say, you know what, we will not tolerate this for you guys. We know how hard you work. We're not going to let one customer spoil your efforts. And at the end of the day, it's much easier to replace one customer than it is to replace a very dedicated employee. So to bring it back to the beginning, you need to have a framework. So you need an operating budget to resolve a complaint if there's monetary compensation involved, like discounts on future products or, or just a straight reimbursement. You need to coach your team in how to manage the complaint right then and there, because it's more ideal to have the frontline employee be able to solve the complaint rather than having to bring a manager in because the manager's time is expensive and they can't be everywhere at once. But if it does need to be escalated, then bring the manager in. Um, so that's kind of the framework of it. It needs to be a step-by-step -step guide so that everyone knows how to execute on an operational process like that. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, man. It's funny because yesterday I had a coffee with with someone I met recently as well. His name is Anas Ghazi. He works at uh, WPP. He's a marketing exec there. And he was telling me basically this uh, a situation where things just didn't go right. 
And he's like, listen, George, like one thing we don't tolerate is rudeness, like from a client, basically. And, and so uh, to your point, like that's a value I didn't want to also take a backseat on, because if I do that, what is that telling my team? So um, I allow, you know, our clients, despite how maybe big or important they are to the firm. But, you know, if you're going to speak like this to, to, to my team, it's just what, what, what am I saying to them as a leader? Yeah, like the customer is not always right, but if they're going to be wrong, allow them to be wrong with integrity. Don't belittle them. Um, ensure that you're carrying yourself in a professional way. But if the customer comes back three or four times with the same complaints, clearly you can't meet their expectations. And it, it, it would be advised that they do business with another company. Uh, and, and quite frankly, give your competitor the headache. Yeah, that's a good point. How did you, I'm, I'm really curious, man, and I wanted to ask you this. How did you fall into uh, Petty and Borrow? Like, how did that happen? And have you done this before? Because I'm, I'm sure for people listening, like, they're like, that's really cool. Number one, if you're in Toronto, you'd know what I'm talking about. Uh, but number two, it's just interesting to be an entrepreneur in that space and partner with, uh, you know, such really good brands in, in the bar and the restaurant space. Yeah, so in 2016, I, I had a relationship with my partner now, Brandon, and uh, we had known each other for years before that and had always wanted to work together. But uh, the opportunity had never presented itself until 2016 when quite literally I remember the day he called me and he said, hey, we I have an opportunity for us to work together. Uh, we're building, um, for those not familiar, Borrow is a 16,000 square foot venue. Uh, each floor, there's four floors. Each floor has its own uh, theme, uh, its own brand. Um, and it's just a massive project. And he called me and said, you know, now's the time. Come to Toronto. Uh, let's get to work. And that is how I got my foot in the door. Mm -hmm. I was only supposed to be a consultant in the early days. Uh, but uh, I, I, you know, I'm speaking on Brandon's behalf, but uh, I brought enough value that him uh, and his other partners said, you know, let's make him a part of our team. And uh, the next project that we opened up was Petty Cash. Um, Petty Cash is interesting because Borrow is more the come and have a two hour dinner uh, and then weave through the building. There's a cocktail lounge if you want to have a cocktail after your dinner and there's a speakeasy and there's a rooftop patio. So you can spend a good four hours in the building. Um, going from floor to floor. Petty cash is different. I compare petty cash to, it's a, it's a younger demographic. It's uh, your vodka soda bar. Uh, you go there for your vodka sodas, listen to your hip hop music. Uh, it's a good vibe. Um, but it's what I compare this to, and it has been one of my great professional challenges. It's like Starbucks at their busiest time. Let's call it, 9 a.m. on a Monday times 20 in terms of how many people are in the venue. And then you mix alcohol and people who are impatient and want their vodka soda or what, whatever they may be uh, uh, drinking that evening. So to manage the customer experience for that is oh so difficult. And uh, I can tell you, uh, and this is not an extension of the truth, my time building the systems for borrow and petty cash were, was much more difficult than my time working for companies like Alfa Romeo, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Verizon uh, when I was consulting. 
Um, so it has been a great challenge, but also again, very rewarding. Uh, but it's, you know, hospitality, um, will chew you up and spit you out if you're not really good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very true. Especially when you were talking about, uh, Petty and kind of the challenges there. Um, how do you, how do you stay focused when you have so much to manage in a day? Uh, Friday between three and 5 PM is very crucial time for me. Uh, if you look at my Google calendar, you'll see that on Fridays from 3 to 5 p.m. every week for the remainder of the year, that time is blocked off. And that's my time. I don't cancel that time for anything. Uh, and it's my time to prepare myself for the week um, that's to come. And I've created a, a framework that allows me to balance the things that I'm responsible for personally, uh, as a, as Sophia's boyfriend, as Maggie's dad, Maggie's uh, I, uh, Rottweiler, um, <laughs> as Rosen Raul's son, as Stephanie's brother. Um, I, I prioritize my health. So when am I going to exercise? On what days? At what time? Okay, now what responsibilities do I have for my clients? Um, that asked me to speak or host workshops. What do I have to do this coming week for them? And then, of course, what am I responsible for at Borrow and Petty Cash? And then I create this list of things, and I don't try to inundate myself with too many things because then nothing will get done. But my rule of thumb is I have four key priorities. There's my personal stuff. So that's Sophia's boyfriend, Rosa Raul's son, what do I have to do for them this coming week? And I try to think of three things. So that's one bucket, the personal. The health is the next bucket. When am I going to exercise? What am I going to do to exercise? The third bucket is uh, my advisory and keynote speaking. What do I have to do for the clients that I advise? What keynote speak, uh, speeches do I have to prepare for? And then the fourth bucket is I'll identify three things that I need to do in the coming week for borrowing petty cash. So at the end of it, I'm left with uh, 12 things that I need to find time for on my calendar for the entire week. That's how I'm able to balance it. Um, it's not really an art or science. It's just a framework that has been working for me. Uh, this year has been the busiest year of my life. And, um, but I manage it. I, I don't find myself, there was maybe one time about a month and a half ago where um, I was uh, carrying on too many responsibilities, but, um, you know, I, I quickly recalibrated myself and said, you know, I have to stop saying yes to everything. Um, so, so the answer to that is how do I stay organized is you need a, a framework for yourself. Uh, you need to reserve time to be able to, understand what is that what does the week look like i hate waking up monday and i don't do this but i hate the idea of waking up on monday and being like okay what do i have to do this week and that's not a great way of organizing yourself um so that's the the framework that i've built to uh, allow myself to to stay organized and, and manage so many responsibilities it's funny because you're taking what you do basically you know with the hospital space or you know companies you're advising with but you're doing that to your personal side as well i'm not sure if people recognize but that framework that, that you're implementing is on both ends exactly i 
I had one of my closest friends in Vancouver um, ask me, like, it seems like every hour of your day is accounted for. And I was like, it, it is, right? Like, both on the personal side and the professional side. And they said, well, like, how have you done that? And I just said, I live and die by my Google calendar. Uh, if, if, my, if Google, like, I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago, where Gmail was down. I like almost self-combusted and like melted into a puddle because I was like, Oh my God, my entire life is on my calendar. So I I know I don't sound like the most exciting guy by saying that, but there are times where I'll, I'll, you know, wake up one day and look at Sophia and be like, you know what, do you want to do absolutely nothing today? And just can't let me cancel everything I have to do today. And, you know, assuming that it doesn't really inconvenience someone, uh, then I will. Right. Uh, Because, you know, the topic of work-life balance is one that a lot of people have different opinions on. My opinion is this. If I want to spend 95% of my time working, so be it. That's my decision. But if you prefer to have spend 50% of your time working, 50% of the time doing stuff with your family or, or um, you know, entertaining yourself a different way, cool. That's your prerogative. Nobody's right or wrong, right? As like with my, with Sophia, I told her at the end of 2018, 2019 is going to be the busiest year of my life. I'm going to travel. I'm going to be away a lot. Um, Are you okay with this? And she essentially said, yes, I'm okay with this because I prepared her, right? So when people say, well, Michelle, you don't, it doesn't seem like you have a lot of work-life balance. I'm like, one, how do you know? And two, so what? That's my definition of success. So. Yeah. You know, the other thing too, man, that I, that I found personally is like, is synergies. That's what I always tell people. Like, I really agree with your, your first point. Uh, and I love the fluidity to, to, to what you're saying. It's like, listen, man, I'm going to wake up one day. If I don't feel like doing it, let's take a day off and just relax because that's going to just, in the long run, like I have the next week ahead too. If I'm going to be kind of miserable doing what I'm doing, it defeats the purpose of doing this whole thing anyways. And the other thing is what you're doing also has a lot of synergy and everything. So the advisory, the, the content that you put out, that feeds yeah. into your personal. The personal feeds into your restaurant. Like uh, I think w- when you are able to at least find synergies, it's not like you're an engineer you know, from 9 to 5 and from 5 to 6 you're like a football coach and from you know, 6 to 10. It's just if it's too crazy on the map then it just doesn't make sense and that's where your time gets scattered in ways that's maybe not efficient to, to your day good observation and you're 100 percent right so petty cash you do borrow when did you think about writing the book and I'm, i obviously want to draw some lessons um just kind of giving some uh, some highlights from it but when did that come about man was it basically lessons from there like what really stemmed the inspiration to write it um, in at the end of 2017, um, a, a friend of mine named Cameron Harold, uh, he was the uh, former COO of One Eight Hundred Got Junk that brought them from three million dollars a year in sales to about like 120 million. Um, had always said like you need to write a book. You have a book in you. Uh, there's not many people that have leverage these strategies in the real world like you have write a book write a book write a book 
And then one day I was uh, at the Arbutus Club with him having lunch in Vancouver when I was when I was visiting. And he's like, when are you going to write the book? And I was like, uh, I don't know. And he emailed somebody while I was at the table and CC'd me. And uh, he emailed the founder of a company called Scribe Media. And he said, hey, meet Michelle, this guy, yeah, he wants to write a book, uh, introduction complete. And I was like, uh-oh. Like, <laughs> I was like, you, he forced me to write the book. So that's kind of when it started. I, I wrote it throughout the first uh, couple quarters of 2018. And then it came out in October. Uh, I had I, I knew that I had a book in me, but I'm just I'm not a natural born writer. Writing is very hard for me. Um, but I had the assistance of a company called Scribe Media that acts as um, the quarterback. I would say uh, they lay out the entire format of it for you. Uh, they write it for you. So there are ghost writers that wrote my book. I'm not you know shy to say that. Uh, but it is in my words. Uh, I had full autonomy over the editing process. Uh, I gave the statistics. I gave the quotes. I hosted the interviews with the people that are quoted in the book. Um, but they did the the, he- the hardest part, and that was write it. Um, and they they record. I think I, I believe I had eight, two or three hour conversations with them on the phone where they ask questions um, to get the book out of you. And then they listen to that audio recording and then start writing in your words. Uh, so that's how the book came together. And it's, it's been great. Um, I, I, everything that I do, George is to satisfy other people. And what I mean by that is I get my highest level engagement as an individual, as a professional, is not when I go to the bank and deposit a dividend check. It's not when I get paid. Sure, when I see a a wire transfer go into my bank account, I'm like, sweet. But that feeling dissipates really quickly. When I get an email from someone that says, Michelle, I read your book, And in chapter three, you mentioned this strategy and I used it in my business and it's working. It's making my life easier. It's making our company more money or however they're defining success. When I get somebody that tweets at me or DMs me on Instagram and says that I'm positively impacting their life, whether it's a somebody who wrote a book or an employee of mine, that is my highest level of engagement. And I've committed my career to that. And I know that my fulfillment will be achieved if I focus on enriching the lives of other people. The money will come. The brand will come. But I, I want to be focused on others. And, and I recognize that that sounds like a platitude that's perfect for a headline for Forbes.com. But it's it's true. And, you know, I've, I've asked myself, why is it? that I am like this. And it was Brian Scudamore that actually, when I interviewed Brian Scudamore, uh, toward the end of the interview, I I thanked him. I said, thank you for building this company because 1-800-GOD-JUNK was my MBA and it helped me build the company that 
me and my partners have built today. But he said, you know what? You have to, and I'm not paraphrasing. He said, you have to stop thanking me for this. You have to thank your parents because they are the ones that raised you with this DNA to really care about other people. And I, I sat there and I was like, whoa, he just blew my mind. And that was a paradigm shift for me. And who do you think I called immediately after, right? Called my parents. And as I share that story with you, man, like for a second there, I got emotional because I'm like, whoa, like it's such a powerful feeling when you're able to really have that tipping point and that recognition of like who has impacted my life and how has that helped me impact other people's lives. Mm-hmm. It's your parents. Yeah, man. I, I always say this too. Like, I don't know. Where are you from originally? Just um, about- well, I was born in Canada, but my parents are from Peru. Oh, no way. Dude, I yeah. was Peruvian people are very hospitable. Like, they're very – South American people. Just, you know, as an entire culture, we're hardworking individuals that really care about people. If you go to Peru, um, nine times out of ten, the first thing people will say is that people are so friendly there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have very similar cultures, like I'm Middle Eastern, but um, it, it's to your point, man. And I think like even your parents are, are I always say this, like my parents are, are the real entrepreneurs in my life, you know. I mean, we, we all think like taking business bets and things is, is, is kind of risky. But, you know, when your parents immigrate to a country where they, first of all, don't know the language, they don't know anybody. And also they're like on the verge of collapsing financially just mm-hmm. to give you and your sibling a chance at a better future. That is the real definition of actual entrepreneurship. I, there are times where I will never, when I was younger, I didn't realize how much effort my parents put into raising my sister and I, um, I, I didn't come from a wealthy family, um, but somehow my parents were able to put us in a good school. Somehow they were able to pay for my hockey every year. Uh, but I remember that there were times where they would say, Hey, there are no presents for Christmas this year. Um, and of course, I, like at, at the time, I was just like, oh, what do you mean? Right? Just a brat. Right? Now that I'm old, older enough to be like, you know what? They did not have this easy. Right? So anything that I'm battling right now pales in comparison to the struggles that they had. Um, so my, you know, the greatest day professionally that I've ever had is the day that I was able to start paying for my parents' mortgage. Cause I'm like, you guys are good. If you don't want to work anymore, you don't need to. Um, so, you know, it's just, I, I would not be the professional or the person I am without uh, my parents. So it's nice to think about it. And, and they hear it from me every week. And by the way, thank you. I resonate with that dude. Having yeah. Now, like having kind of helped secure them more financially, what what really do like grinds your gears? Like when you wake up in the morning and, and you have that kind of fire to do something. Um, and I know you mentioned yeah. is really helping people, but kind of internally, like, what do you what do you really hope that people will kind of remember that you've done? I like solving big challenges. Um, I can't be stagnant. I can't be doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, I have the ambition to to build a, a globally recognized brand that consumers and employees love. And I will embark in, uh, on that journey and that uh, new business next year. But regardless of whether it's professional or personal, like 
I really like challenging myself to the point where I'm like, ah, oh, this hurts. Like, this is really hard uh, because I know it's making me stronger. So, for example, I joined this new gym called SWAT uh, in Toronto, and I'm there five days a week for an hour, and it is the worst hour of my day every day. And I'm just like, I can't, I'm like, I'm paying for this torture, but it's hard. It's hard work. Um, so I, I need to be really challenged or I will become disengaged really quickly. Um, you know, for example, like my LinkedIn activity, I'm like, I want to have a bigger following on LinkedIn so I can share these messages, but I haven't been able to crack that nut yet. Like um, Swish has your, your past guest. So I'm like, okay, here's the challenge. Why haven't I figured this out yet? So now I have to go back to the drawing board. Like, how do I figure this out? So regardless of whether it's personal or professional, I need to have very hard challenges. Gotcha. I love that, man. Let's end with three kind of fire rapid questions. The first sure. one is one piece of advice that you'd give. This is more generic one. The two coming are probably more challenging. But uh, what's one or two pieces of advice that you'd give people in their 20s or 30s? Allocate at least four hours a week to invest in yourself, whether that's, um, listening to podcasts that educate you, reading books, uh, exercising four hours a week minimum of to invest in yourself, both physically, mentally, uh, educationally. Um, I, I met uh, a VP of finance for this company uh, and he had asked me for some, some advice. So I met with him and I asked him, I said, who are you learning from? And he said, nobody. Really, I, I don't have the time. And quite frankly, I said, find the time, right? Everybody has enough time. Find the time. Find four hours a week um, and invest in yourself. And it, and it can be done affordably, right? It doesn't cost any money to listen to podcasts. It costs very little money to uh, read books. Um, costs even less money to go on LinkedIn and find people in your space that have grown great careers that you admire and, and do everything you can to connect with them, to learn from them. So that would be uh, how I'd answer that question. Love it. Love it, man. For the second one, um, apart from your book, if there was one book you can give every single person on earth only once, uh, what would that be? Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Napoleon Hill, nice. Uh, Sonny Verma is somebody, a friend of mine, great entrepreneur. He resides here in Toronto. You have to interview him. Like, I got your money in that. Like 100%. He's way smarter than me. Like, he should have been on the podcast today, not me. Um, but uh, he owns the trademark for Think and Grow Rich. Not many people know that. Yeah, he's, that's the book. Got you, got you. All right, last one, buddy. This is uh, maybe a more fun one. What's next on your bucket list? Oh, um, I'm hesitating because I'm like, how much do I share? Um, <laughs> I, I want to build the Chipotle of Peruvian food. Uh, I don't believe Peruvian food has scaled uh, properly. If you think of the cuisines of the world, Italian food, Chinese food, Thai um that's Mexican right. food has all scaled, but not proven food. Mm. Uh, so the next thing I do will be in the quick service space, and I want to build the Chipotle of proven food, and I will start here in Toronto, and uh, hopefully in 10 or 15 years, it will be a globally recognized brand. 
That's amazing, dude. Well, you have, you have your first customer, and, and I'll do uh, whatever I can to help spread the word. Thanks, I appreciate dude. that. Really appreciate you being here, and um, I learned a lot, man. I always tell people my favorite podcasts are ones where I'm not even thinking of the next question because I'm actually really in, in the conversation. That's when you know it's a good one. Amazing. So-